folks, and welcome to uh, the city of Des Moines, Iowa, which is at present uh, five degrees colder than Longyear Bayan, possibly the northernmost city on the planet up in the Arctic Circle. So that's quite an honor for us. Um, we'll talk more about that in the climate context later in the program. First, though, I want to give a shout-out to our local business partners that helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And this time of the year, they got a really cool fireplace you can sit by to warm up. They've also got a catering service that's Gateway Market and Cafe. And thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic. Um, glad I'm done using flea medicine on my cat, but uh, for all other, all other problems, I'm eager to give uh, Dr. Kim Holding a shout. She's been working 30 years as a veterinarian, 30 years plus, at Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, where you can get a wide selection of fair trade coffee, some fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks to a Cinco de Mayo restaurant located on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Authentic Mexican food, uh, friendly service, and really affordable prices. That's Cinco de Mayo restaurant. And finally, thanks to Noche. That's Central Iowa's premier home for jazz and cabaret, attracting both national acts and local favorites. they got a world-class cocktail bar as well. Check them out, folks. That's Noche on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. All right, welcome to the program today. So, um, big stuff happening here in central Iowa. Big stuff meaning incredibly cold weather. Right now, the real feel out there is 6 degrees. In um, Longyear Bayan, which is a Scandinavian town in the Arctic Circle, uh, <laughs> it's 23 degrees. <laughs> it's a... Uh, uh, when I woke up this morning and I compared those two forecasts side by side, I thought... Do I really want to live here? Do I want to move somewhere more pleasant, like the Arctic Circle? Well, I reconsidered that and think, you know, Des Moines is not a bad place to be, despite that. But, you know, we're getting our butts kicked across the country. If you, I, I looked at the weather map last night, and the band of snow, uh, again, not very wide. It didn't stretch across too much of the country's, you know, width, north to south. But it stretched all the way from Wyoming to Maine. The band of snow, and along that, along with that, uh, a, a frigid blast, uh, compliments of the polar vortex. Uh, again, you know, cold weather is not unusual, even cold weather that comes early in October or November. And again, especially in the middle of a con continent like this, you're going to have extremes because you don't have the, mod the modifying influence of the oceans. And the other unique thing about the Midwest, I mean, we've got a lot of cool stuff here. This is unique and cool in some ways and troubling in others. We have no mountain range that blocks the cold blast from the north or that blocks the warm, wet weather from the south. And so that's one reason we get these exciting tornadoes and thunderstorms and things like that. And also those infamous prairie blizzards. Now, uh, the snow we had this, this uh, past night, I wouldn't call that a prairie blizzard, but it was um, it was a big deal <laughs> because we don't normally have uh, several inches of snow in uh, the first half of November, but uh, be that as it may, that's what we've got. All right, so um, I don't know a lot about New Zealand's government. I know they're on the opposite side of the world and the people are standing upside down because of that. Okay, I made that part up. But I do know that uh, New Zealand has been paying more attention to the climate crisis than, say, oh, um, half of the U.S. population. Uh, but... Um, you know what, what? What came out of there this past weekend, or this past week rather, was uh, was uh, beyond impressive. So, a lawmaker, uh, Jacinda Ardern, I think I'm saying her name correctly, but I could be wrong. She uh, had introduced and spoke about um, landmark legislation. This is a major legislation. It passed the New Zealand Parliament, and it had. Um, Bipartisan support, or I guess in a parliamentary system you'd call it cross-party support, because you've got more than one, more than more than two political parties buying into it. The legislation commits New Zealand to reduce its carbon emissions to zero by 2050, and to meet its commitments under the Paris Climate Accords. Now, honestly, that may not be enough with the pace of change that's upon us. 2050 may need to be revised very, very quickly. 
And I know that uh, a lot of folks right now are focused on, you know, trying to make as big a transition as possible by 2030. And that may be a more realistic uh, timeline, scientifically, maybe not politically. <laughs> but again, science has more to say about what happens in politics than vice versa. Sorry, politics. Sorry, politicians. You don't get to determine what happens on science. But um, science may be telling us that 2050 is not soon enough. But again, New Zealand accomplished something significant. The um, the climate change, uh, checking this article from The Guardian, uh, The Guardian has done, among major media, there are, there's probably no one, in fact, who is doing as good a job at focusing on the climate crisis as The Guardian. Uh, certainly when you compare The Guardian to uh, pathetic uh, outlets like the Des Moines Register, sorry, just going to say it, uh, there's no comparison. I mean, the Register can um, can talk about all sorts of stories that involve the climate impact without ever mentioning climate change. It's almost like there's a there's a there's a requirement that they don't do that. It reminds me of what happened down in Florida with um, <laughs> with, uh, with the governor um, requiring this is the previous governor requiring that uh, that no one in his state agencies use the words global warming or climate change. Maybe that same prohibition is in effect in the Gannett network. I don't know, but it sure seems like it. That said, here's the good guys, The Guardian, consistently covering climate stories. So anyway, in New Zealand, the um, the climate change bill uh, it passed last Thursday. Um, there was a center-right opposition from the National Party originally, but they threw their support behind it late in the day despite the fact that their amendments to the bill had not been accepted. The bill passed, I mean, we're, we're not just talking bipartisan or multipartisan support. We're talking 119 to 1. And I'm thinking, who was that one vote? Did Steve King, Congressman Steve King, become a member of the New Zealand Parliament? That I, and I missed that. Because he, if, he if he was there, he probably would have voted no. Anyway, that's really, really exciting to see an entire legislative body federal legislative body get behind a significant climate change initiative. So, again, the bill commits New Zealand to keeping keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees. It also provides a framework for New Zealand to um, to adapt and prepare for the climate emergency. And that is just as important because so little is being done to prepare for the reality that is becoming more and more clear. And again, Part of the problem with the reality that's becoming more and more clear is the details remain unclear and probably will because it's really hard to know exactly how all this is going to play out. Uh, it's impossible to know for sure, but we can bet on a couple things, on several things. We can bet on warmer conditions overall. We can bet on cold blasts like this because of the shifting, um, the way the polar vortex has been pushed around. We can also count on droughts in some places an extreme fire in California and other western states. We can count on floods on the Missouri River and the Mississippi River. You know, they're already saying that folks who live along the Missouri River in North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, um, Missouri, they already should be thinking about the likelihood of flooding next year. Partly because of what the forecast says, but also partly because the huge impact from the most recent uh, from this year's uh, uh, bomb cyclone and all the other <laughs> newly named storms that hit, th those conditions haven't been remedied. Uh, the levees are still out, and in some fields are still underwater. You know, these fields didn't just not get planted. They never got dry. You know, so, um, you know, I think the uh, the bottom line is, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we have a world of hurt coming at us, and... Um, the fact that New Zealand talked not just not just about reducing emissions but preparing for the climate emergency is commendable. We need to be doing that. And we're going to talk more about that. I've got some ideas for how cities like Des Moines can do that. We're going to take a short break, folks. And when we come back, uh, Charles Goldman is going to join us here on the Fallon Forum. Hey, is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses and hand-selected wines and craft beer. 
Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Broadcasting from Des Moines, the snowy, but also culturally and and uh, and uh, culinarily advanced uh, heartland of the U.S. Here, uh, yeah, we got a, we had quite a rough night last night. Uh, I want to thank the um, the uh, local folks here with uh, Lorena 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. That's our home station, and thanks to all the other stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this uh, program. Okay, so. Um, I think we have a call. Charles Goldman's on the phone with us. Hello, Charles. Ed, how's it going? Sorry I couldn't be with you today. Oh, it's okay. You're probably just uh, hunkered down under blankets, right, trying to stay warm? <laughs> no, no, no. I had to come in early. Aha. Uh-huh. In, into the, uh, the into, the, into hospital. the hospital, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope that goes well. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I know you've got some thoughts on uh, on uh, our dear friend William Barr. Well, yeah, actually, there's been, you know, a couple, there's a fascinating article on Barr uh, in Vanity Fair about his dad's history as a um, headmaster at Dalton School, which was a sort of uber-liberal school uh, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and sort of how it shapes Barr's attitude. And, you know, what what we found out about William Barr from his speech at Notre Dame is that um, 
he's part of the war on Christmas, war on Christian religion uh, believers in this country, and that the secularists, the the militant secularists, are trying to destroy religion in this country. So that what sort of underlies his unexplainable fealty to the president is his belief that um, uh, that the president is an instrument of God and that he is working, you know, God is mysteriously working through Donald Trump, of all people, to reestablish religion to its rightful primacy in the American society. Well, well, well President Trump would, would agree with that. He, uh, he, he has already told us that he's the chosen one. <laughs> he's the chosen, right? that's correct. Right, yeah, so he, he and Barr are on the same page. Good. Yeah, <laughs> and, and actually Barr's, Barr's history is very fascinating. His father was actually uh, Jewish, and then um, I think dabbled in Catholicism, and then ended up describing himself later in life as an atheist, while his mother was evidently a very devout Catholic, as as uh, William Barr is. Um, so that, that explains some of the trauma. Well, yeah, you've spoken about that in your own past. Um, right. So, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about what's going on is, uh, you know, the story that kind of got glossed over a couple of weeks ago was the fact that, as we may all remember, uh, the president has instructed the Department of Justice to uh, ferret out what happened in terms of what they have, you know, Barr has called the spying on President Trump's campaign. Um, which, remember, President Trump made about him. The, and, you know, the, quote, spying that was done was done regarding a number of members of his campaign, but somehow it morphed into it was about him, but I guess that's not unusual because everything is about him. <laughs> Um, so, you know, uh, William Barr has, has, has been notably absent because he's been traveling all around the world, including going to Italy and uh, Australia, and also talking to the British, who are just horrified at that the Attorney General of the United States is now investigating his own organizations, i.e. the FBI and the CIA, demanding access to top-secret things such as who the CIA has on their payroll, who works for them in Russia. Is there, is, there, is there some record, some evidence that the British were appalled by that? Uh, there was an article in uh, one of the mainstream papers there talking about that they were just, yeah, they couldn't figure out what, what Barr was doing. Okay. Um, but this is all part of the counter-narrative that's being raised during the impeachment, right. uh, you know, uh, event. And interestingly, um, if you remember, what did the what did the Republicans, the lapdogs in the House, say that they're having? So this is a Soviet-style trial, <laughs> right? That's clever. You got right, yeah. And so what what's going on which, here? Which which makes Nancy Pelosi a Russian asset? Well, in fact, in fact, the Russian. <laughs> I'm mean, sorry, not the Russians. The Republicans um, have actually asked that um, Pelosi shift. Um, Biden, uh, Joe, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, be made to testify before the impeachment committee. And I guess the only answer from the, any of them should be, I'll go after the president does. But, um, <laughs> and of course, there isn't any, any sane lawyer in the United States that's going to allow the president to testify under oath. But um, it, this is all about, this is, this, but the, the news that sort of got underneath the radar was the fact that this prosecutor in, in Connecticut, Durham, who uh, Barr asked to, you know, find out what happened in terms of the FISA warrants and everything else, has uh, evidently turned this now into a criminal investigation so that he has more subpoena power. And that way he can, um, uh, you know, force FBI agents who, you know, make huge amounts of money to have to hire lawyers to now, you know, be questioned, et cetera. Um, and this is, this is about... It, this whole kind of conflated, you know, right-wing conspiracy idea that the Ukrainians were actually at the middle of the hack of the DNC and that um, they did this to um, implicate the Russians, and they did it, you know, they did it in a way that implicated the Russians. And, and the whole point was to engender sympathy for Hillary Clinton, <laughs> and that was going to get her votes, right? This is, now, this is, of course, the same... The same situation where, uh, what was it, three weeks before the election, Comey says they've reopened the emails issue. And, and if you notice, the president doesn't that. have this whole thing straight. Because yeah. con- he, has, he has put two conspiracy theories together that he heard about on Fox News. You know, one is the issue of Hillary's emails, and the second is the issue of the DNC hack. And somehow, if you, you know, read the transcript or the partial transcript of the call with 
President Zelensky of the Ukraine, he's conflating the email, Hillary email issue with the DNC hack, and these are two completely different issues. But it's all part of this grand conspiracy theory yeah. that they've created. And, and Barr is out there. Uh, we don't know what Durham's role in this is, you know, whether he's, he's doing Barr's bidding or what's going on. But basically, um, the, the real show trials that may occur is when they decide to, uh, you know, to uh, subpoena and maybe even charge people like Clapper, Brennan, uh, some of the others, and in fact, if you if you watch Fox News every once in a while, as I do, you know Corey Lewandowski was on a number of months ago saying exactly that. So, and, so uh, again, the, the main the main focus of this whole thing, this all revolves around the uh, the impeachment uh, effort based on you know President Trump's uh, uh, interaction with the U- Ukrainian leaders. Um, but so all this other stuff are sideshows. But isn't isn't the whole impeachment? Uh, Circus itself a sideshow and maybe a distraction from the fact that uh, that somehow Democrats need to nominate a candidate that is going to effectively challenge and defeat this president. Isn't that really the is, – isn't it all kind of a distraction? You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, um, they, they carry Mark, Mark Thiessen's uh, op-eds from the Washington Post. He's the, one of the conservative writers on the Washington Post. They carry that on Sunday in the Des Moines Register. And, you know, normally, I mean, I read through it and just say, you know, why, they, why does this guy have a column? <laughs> but, you know, he, he did make kind of a good point here, which is why not just censor the president instead of trying to impeach him? We all know he's not going to get impeached. Right, I saw that. Right, but the main reason they, they went with the impeachment. Well, I mean, I mean he's going to, the, 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 uh, the House is going to vote to impeach him. Right. But that's as far as it's going to go. Right, but the problem is going to be that, that he's going to get you know, obviously not convicted in the Senate. I think it's a pipe dream that they think 20 Republicans are going to change sides. On yeah, that's, that. that's, that's, uh, that's fantasy. Right. But the, I think that's they Santa did Claus the, and Easter Bunny material. Yeah, exactly. They did, they did the impeachment to allow them to have enough authority to issue subpoenas, whereas if they're just going to vote on a censure, then there wouldn't have been any investigation into right. it. And what they, want, you know, what they want is some of this testimony from these you know, various military and long-term foreign service officers to get out into the public. Yeah. But the public is showing that, for the most part, it doesn't really care that much, that people have already made up their minds anyway. Um, well, most, most people would be happy to see him impeached. Right. I mean, a majority. It's not a huge majority, but it's a majority. But again, I think... I think most people would also agree with the question, uh, is this really that important compared to climate, health care, education, immigration, debt, taxes, housing, all these other – well, the crises of climate and all these other issues that, that are really much more front and center in people's lives than whether or not the House goes with this symbolic impeachment effort. But you know what? I mean part of the, the big part of the problem to me is papers like the New York Times that now have a special division completely committed – to promoting the impeachment effort. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, it's no wonder that it gains so much conversation because you've got the largest, you know, media outlets in the country continuing to hammer away at it ad nauseum. Right. Well, it's because it's going to be great TV, you know. But, it, I mean, they're missing the boat. They don't call Giuliani. Giuliani would be, you know, entertainment that would last a long time. If, if I would stay home and watch Julian. <laughs> you, you have said that, and I, I, I'm afraid, I'm, I fear for your patience when I hear you say this. Sort well, of thing. but now, you know, the other issue is that, it, 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 again, I was reading an article last night talking about the fact that the, the Democrats are assuming that most Hispanics will vote for them. And actually, there are a lot of pollsters who are predicting that, yes, the majority will, but it won't be the same majority that voted for them in 2016, voted for Hillary in 2016, because the, uh, a lot of Hispanic men appreciate the strength and machismo of President Trump, which to me is like, I don't, I don't get it. Here's somebody who, anything that goes wrong, he immediately blames somebody else, and we all know what he's doing now. He'll throw Sunland, you know, and uh, Mulvaney, and Giuliani under the bus in a second. Of course he will. He's you know. from Melania. Yeah, I mean, this, this is his pattern. <laughs> he never takes responsibility for anything. But yeah. now, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, the Republicans kind of do have an argument that really what he did colluding with a foreign government is not really an impeachable offense because they've done it twice. 
<laughs> you know, if we what, go back... What do you mean they've done it twice? Well, they've done it twice. If we go back to Nixon running against Hubert Humphrey in, in 1968, there is um, no question, absolutely none, that um, he, through a woman by the name of Mrs. Mrs. Chenault, um, got word to the South Vietnamese government... Which that South, should, South Vietnamese, okay. Right, that they would not, that they should not... Um, you know, that they should hold off on any negotiations with the North Vietnamese because he would get them a better deal, right? And um, and Johnson found out and called Nixon directly after he spoke to, I think, Everett Dirksen, who was the Republican uh, leader in the Senate at that time, and said, look, this is what this guy's doing. This is treason. Let me guess at the other incident, uh, Iran-Contra. Uh, no, not Iran Contra. It well, was, wasn't it, what, no, no, no. The other incident was the the release of the uh, hostages in the Iranian. Well, that's what I meant. The American that's, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, that's that's the incident. Right. Sure. And there is evidence that William Casey, who um, ultimately became CIA director and then mysteriously had a stroke before he was supposed to testify on Iran Contra, um, did contact the uh, Iranians for the Reagan administration, pretty much with the same deal. Like don't so, don't make a deal with Carter. So why why don't Republicans uh, champion that uh, line of reasoning? Hey, um, what what Trump did with the Ukraine is not a problem because we do this all the time. <laughs> I mean, why, why not why not just come out and admit that? Since neither of those other two Republican presidents were impeached. Well, I mean, yes, Nixon right, was impeached, that, but not for that reason. Right, that's my point. I mean, it 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 has been accepted behavior in the past, and it, they didn't get impeached for it. But you know, I mean, they don't like they don't like going out there and besmirching St. Ronnie's reputation. You know, but in fact, they go the other way. If you remember correctly, multiple times in the 2016 campaign. Uh, the can- the candidates talked about how it showed how st- how strong Reagan was because the Iranians were so scared of him that they released him they released the hostages thirty minutes after he was inaugurated right, right. Yeah, which of no. course was ludicrous but in point of fact what had been going on was that they thought they they released him because they hated Carter right. but they had been but they had been negotiating with Carter and really were going to do it anyway yeah. and they figured this would just be one final screw you to you know to President Carter who they you know, thought personified the great Satan. And also, remember, Carter allowed um, the Shah to be coming to the country to be treated, come to the United States to be treated for. I think he had pancreatic cancer, if I remember correctly. And, you know, they had kind of sent word that they would not see that as a benign, um, you know, event. So, um, but yeah, no, it's a good point, but I just don't see it playing very well. And and since most people in the United States can't think past 9-11, they would probably say, uh, "Who is President Carter?" Uh, Iranian hostages. You <laughs> so here's my question: Did the, has, has a Democratic president ever done this? I mean, I, I I can imagine it could have happened a long time ago, even back in the 1800s. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know about the 1800s. I, you know, there, there's of course the the theory that um, Roosevelt knew the uh, Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor, and he actually maximized the damage. By you know telling them to put the the planes tip you know the plane tip to plane tip because what had happened was they were very concerned about as um, you know espionage and, and and the spies you know blowing up the planes and stuff and by putting them all together on at Hickam Field it allowed them to guard them more easily but it also allowed the Japanese to destroy all of them because they were all sitting in one place you know um, I, I you know but that's kind of the new you know, the uh, center for the new American progress, you know, the one that drove the idea that 9-11, well, the the left wing, that please 9-11 was like Pearl Harbor. It was a setup done by the government to justify, you know, going into Iraq. So, no, I don't don't know that we have any really equivalent of of what, you know, Nixon undoubtedly did and what Reagan in several books and and, and journalistic articles uh, was, uh, I think everyone agreed that Casey did, in fact, yeah, contact. Well, that that, yeah, that, that was pretty clear, I think. So anyway, well, so uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess Republicans really don't want to admit that uh, that line of defense, but uh, we'll see where this goes. Well, it'd be again, great on Veterans Day, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, super patriots, all of them. Yeah, well, led, by I, the, led, led by you know by the president, who some people call uh, President Bone Spurs. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Veterans Day, when we come back from a short break here, I'm going to talk about uh, what I was doing four years ago on Veterans Day. Uh, on Omaha Beach in France. Uh, Charles, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, this is great. 
All right. Take care. All right. Back in a minute, folks. Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you here, folks, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Shout out to our local business partners who make this program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, uh, this week celebrating their seventh anniversary. Hawk is located in Des Moines' historic East Village, and 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand, just east of the state capitol in Des Moines. Get all your insurance needs covered under one banner. That's Diversity Insurance. No appointment needed. Just stop by. And thanks also to Community CPA, with offices in Des Moines, Iowa City, and Minneapolis. Give Yingsa, the owner and founder, a shout for all your tax and accounting needs. That's Community CPA. All right, so, hey, um, what were you doing a year ago today? Well, in my case, what was I doing four years ago today on Veterans Day, or as it's also known, Armistice Day? Well, me and, uh, me and Steve Martin, who had walked uh, with us all the way across the country on the Great March for Climate Action, uh, Steve got the idea somehow that we should, uh, we should continue our walk and end up in Paris in time for the U.N. Climate Summit. Now, there was one problem. There was this vast ocean in between where we stopped walking in Washington, D.C. and Paris. But we, we, we flew across the ocean and uh, took the train from Paris to Omaha Beach, where we began walking on this very day four years ago. Now, um, that was about a 200-mile walk. It took us a little less than three weeks. And, um, again, our plan was to arrive in Paris just at the start of the U.N. Climate Summit. Now, there were groups of other folks who had been on the Great March for Climate Action walking from Rome uh, and on a very spiritually focused march. There was a group marching from uh, the Netherlands. Again, and some of this was a bigger group than just folks who were on the Great March for Climate Action, but uh, climate marchers were participating in all three of these different walks from three different directions. Steve and I coming from the east, sorry, from the west, Uh, Sean Glenn and others coming from the south, Um, Kathy Thomas and others coming from the north. Anyway, um, it was was quite an experience because uh, what happened two days into our march was the horrific terrorist attacks in Paris that killed over 100 people, um, paralyzed the, the city, and resulted in the banning of the planned march and rally uh, by citizens groups prior to the U.N. Climate Summit. That was a big deal. And, you know, it became hard to talk about anything else besides the, um, besides the terrorist attacks. It was, um, was kind of like everything, everything else got lost in that moment. And I kind of understand that. I mean, that's a huge and traumatic national impact. So um, Steve Martin and I set out from Omaha Beach. And we... Um, we very we had a very kind host who had uh, who had um, let us stay at her place, uh, this beautiful um, place out in the country, uh, Amy uh, Amy Solomon, and uh, she uh, drove us to the start of the march, and um, we uh, what we found was this amazing sculpture that has been built as a tribute to those who fought and died on Omaha Beach. Uh, as the initial wave of uh, liberation by the Allies began. And again, in France, of course, this is Armistice Day. And we, um, the, uh, you know, in the three-plus weeks that I was in France, I, I had, I, every, every meal was great. I mean, French food is always great. I had one bad meal, and it was that day uh, at sunset as we arrived at a fast food joint <laughs> called Café Américain. Um, it was terrible. But we, uh, we, we choked it down uh, and, and knew that there would be better food on the horizon the next day. So um, it was tough because, uh, you know, Steve and I hadn't been training that much, and uh, that was a 16-mile walk. Uh, we were sore. But it was, um, it was really strong, a, a very strong moment, a very um, uh, moving experience to walk along the beach where 
we knew years ago uh, there had been this incredible human effort with incredible and tragic loss of life, uh, people coming ashore to uh, try to push back the Nazis and free France and the rest of Europe from the the scourge of, of fascism. So, um, yeah, I wrote in my blog that day, uh, it was a hard day. My hamstrings screamed at me to stop. But as we passed reminders of the hardships faced by Allied soldiers in 1944, our walk from Omaha Beach to Paris felt like a Sunday stroll in comparison. I imagined I imagined landing there in 1944, struggling to fight my way through the pounding surf under heavy artillery fire, dead and wounded men piling up around me. What a hell on earth that must have been. And what tremendous levels of courage and heroism must have been needed to get through it. Steve and I walked through Long and saw the still-evident scars of a town bombed by Allied forces to root out Nazi troops. For the residents of Long, Witnessing the destruction of their town must have also required courage and heroism, knowing that they were being liberated even as their homes were being flattened. Now, our host, I mentioned earlier that our host for that uh, first two nights as we started the march was uh, Amy Swanson-Solomon. Sorry, Amy Swanson-Solomon. There we go. Uh, <laughs> she, she and I hadn't met until I arrived at the train station, and... Um, she was. Uh, she'd heard about the march that we were planning and was very moved by it, and, and invited us to um, come and stay. Um, yeah, she said it would have been really cool if the uh, churches along the routes had rung their bells to welcome us, as they had, you know, welcoming the troops years ago back in 1944. I knew that was a bit much, uh, <laughs> but uh, I certainly appreciated the um, the uh, the idea. You know, so um. Really, for the first three days of our march, we were walking along the beach. Uh, you know, it, it isn't like you start on the beach and head inland immediately because the uh, you know you're the, the you're facing north when you look out to the ocean at that point. And so we're walking from west to east for the first three days. And um, it was kind of it was the second day was a little easier. It was a, it was thirteen miles. Uh, and I again I'll read you a little bit from my blog from that day. Uh, no narrow roads or scary traffic today. Our walk unfolds along the beautiful beaches of Normandy. Uh, Steve and I could not ask for a more perfect route. Our path meanders just above the strand, sometimes on man-made boardwalks, sometimes on trails that weave through, through dunes lush with plant and animal life. The surf and a light breeze are rhythmic, soothing, hypnotic. Large tracts of seaweed have been left behind by the tide. The locals comb through them for mussels, clams, or perhaps other shellfish. I'm not sure. Shorebirds are in abundance, and rabbits. Hundreds of rabbits have carved out a sprawling colony in the soft soil on the edge of the dunes, and not coincidentally, next to a veritable smorgasbord of grass. I enjoy the plant life as well, both with my eyes and tongue. Although I feasted on three excellent meals today, I eagerly snack on plump rose hips. But this, but this natural beauty is frequently interrupted by reminders of the traumatic events of June 6, 1944. We walked by several pillboxes, which I had never been familiar. I'd not been familiar with pillboxes. These are apparently concrete bunkers from which German troops rained fire on Allied soldiers and ships. And Steve and I learned that one pillbox had sunk five Allied vessels, killing everyone on board, until it was, quote, cleared, um, from a German's point of view, cleared is the euphemism for killed. We also um, passed uh, monuments, uh, tributes to those who had fought and died, and occasionally um, there was a tank that served as a monument. And we, we came across, the one that was most um, striking in our memory was a Canadian tank that was called One Charlie, and it, it made it, this tank, this Allied tank, made it to shore on D-Day, only to be, quote, disabled by German soldiers. And the tank's occupants, quote, cleared, again, killed. I, I, you know, it, it bothers me, all these euphemisms that pop up in warfare. Now, throughout the day, that second day, this would have been March, uh, sorry, sorry, November 12th of uh, 20, uh, 
2015. Throughout the day, I remember thinking about the tremendous sacrifices made by all these soldiers, not just the soldiers, um, but and, and, and also the residents of the French communities who are in the line of fire, not just, not just all of them, but also the everyday men and women back home. And I thought, about, I thought that day about my dad, who had done his part for the war effort. Again, he was a teenager. I think he was 13 at the time. But he told me about this, how he would go down to the railroad tracks and collect tinfoil for the scrap metal drives. He'd find those empty cigarette boxes, and he'd pull that piece of tinfoil out of there, and he'd collect those. That was his small contribution to the metal that was needed to help fight the war. You know, I also thought about um, Rosie the Riveter, who had become kind of a symbol for a lot of us involved with the climate movement, uh, because... We need uh, everybody, all hands on deck. We need everybody to step to, up to the plate, and um, and whether it's you're, whether you're fighting the crisis of fascism or climate change, you know, Rosie the River is a pretty powerful symbol. You know, I remember thinking about how the um, the same level of commitment and focus and national sense of purpose that was demanded uh, back in World War II to fight fascism, to liberate Europe. I thought about how that is again demanded in the face of the climate crisis. I, and I think about that a lot because I think that is perhaps the one of the most powerful metaphors that can help Americans begin to think about what our obligation and duty is at this time. Because if, uh, if 70 years ago, America could mount an, an economic conversion that led to the successful invasion of Normandy and the liberation of Europe, I mean, really, is it too much to expect that Americans could not again rise to that challenge and transform our economy you know, the world's largest economy for a peaceful purpose. And again, obviously, we're, we're, we're 15% of the world's global emissions, but we still have a leadership role, a moral role, a responsibility. And sure, the other significant economies of the world, Europe, Brazil, China, India, they need to step up too. Everybody needs to step up. But I think just as in World War II, when we, when we stepped up, it was the tipping point that made the difference. So, um, you know, okay, one other reflection from, uh, from four years ago, that, that, uh, that second day. You know, we stopped at the American Cemetery and had a really good conversation with uh, some of the French staff people who worked there. And they told us, uh, I, I told them why we were walking. I told them about how we saw this connection between the response to World War II and the needed response to climate act, climate change. And they said, we get that. We get that totally. We understand that. And, uh, and you know, and one of them said, it's important for us to remember that we're not really fighting to save the world. We're fighting to save ourselves. The world will get by. The earth will get by fine without us. That's important to remember that we have this responsibility to ourselves and to the other species that are affected the planet will still be around, but it would be really a shame, sad, tragic, in fact, of course, to see it go the way it might if we don't get our act together. But I want to conclude by pointing out one very hopeful moment, not, not, not too far from the, the, um, that, that center and the American cemetery. There's a German cemetery. And I was like, really? They've got a German cemetery as part of this, uh, you know, presentation? So... It was remarkable to me that the French would allow a memorial to the country that invaded them, killed them, occupied them, destroyed their towns. And that struck me as a really incredible gesture of forgiveness and goodwill. And if the world can tolerate a German cemetery next to an American cemetery on French soil, perhaps the world is poised to move beyond division, beyond war, beyond greed, and toward the cooperation that we all need to truly build a sustainable future for the betterment of all people on this planet. So, folks, happy Veterans Day. Remember what the sacrifices done before us. Remember the sacrifices we still need to get accomplished to move forward. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for joining us on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, and greetings from caucus country. Yes, uh, the Iowa caucus is, uh, oh, coming up here pretty soon, uh, February 3rd. That's, that's not really that soon, I guess, but it, given how 
intense and long the campaign period has been here. It seems like it's getting close enough where we can almost see see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it has been um, it has been quite a ride, <laughs> I tell you. Uh, and uh, it, we we aren't through it yet, of course. But and I know for folks who might not be from Iowa, uh, you know, yes, it's a great opportunity that we have here, but it's also a huge burden, a huge responsibility, and it keeps us incredibly busy. Uh, and things happen so quickly at such short notice. Um, you know, my um, Kathy and I went to the CNN town hall with Tom Steyer uh, last night, and uh, you know that that we we just got. Oh, you know, the notice that we were going to be able to go to that uh, a couple days before. And, um, yeah, that was, uh, there was one, one student from Grinnell College who asked a question about climate, and his response was strong, solid. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Steyer is one of the handful of candidates that has actually done a lot of work on climate. That's encouraging. And um, his response was good. It's, um, it's interesting being in the live audience because uh, you, know, you get coached quite a bit as terms of what you should and shouldn't do. The, um, the, uh, I, now, I knew that Joe Biden was going to be in Grinnell tonight. This is um, Monday, Monday night. I knew he was going to be there, but I didn't know whether we might get tickets or not. Well, just got notice, um, what, this was a matter of, what, seven hours before the event, that, yeah, you got a couple tickets. See, so that's, um, that's a great opportunity, but it also means we have to cancel a couple things and juggle stuff around and try to figure out how to fit supper into all this. And, you know, at the last minute, it gets pretty, pretty hectic when things happen so quickly with so many candidates. I mean, right now, as we speak, literally as we speak, Bernie Sanders is about a half mile away. And I'm going to try to go talk with him about the Dakota Access Pipeline and why we need to stop the you stop the um, the pipeline company from doubling the flow of oil through that. So yeah, great opportunities, but also a lot of work. It keeps you moving, especially today. Trying to keep moving in this cold right now. The real feel with the wind chill is six degrees. Um, the snow is still falling. Well, it just stopped falling. Now it's just blowing, I guess. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, it's harder to get around when the ice, I, the sidewalks are covered with ice. But anyway, you know, you'll say, Andrew, stop your whining. Quit whining and complaining. We want to have what you have. And you know what? I wish you could. I think everybody needs the opportunity to have these kinds of interactions with candidates. You get to know things about them that you might not know otherwise. So anyway, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm not complaining, but I am pointing out that it is a huge, a huge obligation as well as a huge opportunity. So speaking of Sanders... Uh, there were some saying that he was out of it, done, finished, washed up after his heart attack. And after uh, that, and that and seeing the, uh, the surge of, of Elizabeth Warren, the theory being there's only so much, quote, progressive vote to go around, and, and Warren was gradually, rapidly even, scooping up a bigger chunk of it than Sanders. Well, you know, I think that's, I think most Democrats, again, all of us want to see climate change addressed. That's, that's, how, that's huge on our list of priorities. Healthcare is huge on our list of priorities. But I think more than anything, people want somebody who they think they, they can beat Donald Trump. And that's really important, obviously. Uh, but, you know, when, when people analyze that and they go, okay, I want somebody who can beat Trump, it's really hard not to, um, not to fall into the trap of trying to overthink what that looks like. And so you have people who spend all sorts of time analyzing how the word democratic socialist is going to play out in the, in the election or how age, in the case of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, is going to play out or how the, um, the, uh, the, the wealth tax proposed by Warren and others is going to play out in the general, general election. And so you have lots of people who spend lots of time overthinking something because there's really, it's, it's, it, it, I think it's really a lot simpler than those kinds of questions. I think the real crux of it is Americans are fed up with the status quo. And that explains, more than anything, the election of Donald Trump. So how do you go ahead and challenge the status quo? How do you present a candidate that has the best chance of, uh, of stepping outside of the predictable box uh, and not into the same box as Trump, <laughs> but to provide a countervailing voice that talks about the the, the, the challenges facing the vast majority of Americans who are not being served well 
in the current status quo environment. So, you know, and again, you know, this is obviously my, my, my interest too, but the, uh, the, there was a void in the, in the, uh, in the, in the candidate, uh, candidates' uh, platforms when Jay Inslee dropped out because Jay Inslee was the one candidate who had laser beam focused on climate change. And I've been surprised that no candidate immediately stepped forward and said, oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the climate change candidate. Yep, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm your guy or gal. I was surprised nobody did that immediately. And now it looks like Bernie Sanders might be doing that. Again, uh, I think most people have moved beyond the fact, that the, the concern that his heart attack is going to knock him out. And, uh, and not only has, <laughs> has that kind of been put aside, but getting the endorsement of three incredible progressives in Congress, uh, especially Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that was huge. And here she is in Iowa this past weekend campaigning, even going door-to-door -door in my neighborhood, <laughs> knocking on doors. Uh, that was a surprise to people, I think. Uh, but you have Ocasio-Cortez going door-to-door. Unfortunately, -door. the cold and snow had not hit yet. It was, I believe, on Saturday, 59 degrees. Again, in Iowa, if you don't like the weather, just wait a day, and it'll be something completely different. But um, so, you know, the, the events here in Iowa, in Council Bluffs, and think oh, greater Omaha, Des Moines, and Iowa City, extremely well attended and a very youthful audience and a very diverse audience. And, and Sanders making it clear that climate, the climate crisis is his number one issue. Now, I'm, again, I'm surprised that nobody came out and said that earlier after Jay Inslee left. But um, him saying that uh, will do two things. It will either bring to his banner the folks who are really concerned, who understand just how urgent climate change is, and or you'll start seeing other candidates saying, well, hey, I'm also putting this number one on my list of priorities. And along that line, last night at the uh, Tom Steyer CNN Town Hall Forum in uh, Grinnell, after the event, a lot of us went up to talk with, uh, with Steyer. And Kathy and I said, you know, well, yeah, we talked a little bit more about climate. And um, not, not just... And I should say this too, not just in our conversation after the event, but his comments regarding climate during the event, he said very emphatically, it is my number one priority. So there's two candidates who are making it clear that it's their number one priority or saying that. But the challenge is, I mean, we had Kirsten Gillibrand, the U.S. Senator from New York, who would tell us repeatedly that climate was her number one priority. But, you know, we stopped believing her because... It never came across that way in her stump speeches, on her website, in her publications. It came across as something she would talk about when pushed, but never really prioritize. So the question going forward here is, will Sanders continue to show that it is his number one priority by putting it front and center in every stump speech, in every event, in every press release, on his website, on his Facebook page, everywhere else? Will it clearly become his number one priority, the way it was the number one priority for Governor Jay Inslee. And back to what Tom Steyer said last night in Grinnell, will it become his number one priority? And again, I will say that Steyer and Sanders are two of the candidates who have done great work on climate, who have a track record, who have background on that, uh, on fighting that, uh, fighting that fight. So we'll see. But I would not be surprised to see more candidates stepping forward and saying, yes, climate is now my number one concern. I'm going to focus my campaign on it like Governor Jay Inslee did. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, I'm hopeful that other candidates will begin to do that. We shall see. So um, one candidate that, that hasn't done that, but again, that has talked very emphatically about the urgency of climate change uh, is Tulsi Gabbard, and uh, she's fascinating because she might have um, never made it to qualifying for the November debate, debate if it weren't for Hillary Clinton. So I, I hope that uh, Tulsi has sent Hillary a nice thank you note, because after Clinton slammed Gabbard as a, quote, Russian asset, um, the response, well, Gabbard's response was really pointed. I mean, she called Clinton, the queen of the warmongers, 
which is a beautiful metaphor. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then you, you also had like three or four, maybe five other presidential candidates saying, no, Gabbard's not a Russian asset. Uh, so you had a, a big pushback against Clinton within the Democratic candidate field. And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, kind of taking, it's almost like the baton was passed from, you know, corporate establishment um, politician Hillary Clinton to corporate establishment media types like the New York Times, um, The View, you name it. I mean, the corporate media is, they're, they're too deep and thick to mention all by name. But anyway, The View was interesting because they, um, the, four, uh, the, four, uh, the four women who operate The View uh, slammed her pretty hard, calling her a useful idiot <laughs> uh, and not just a Russian asset. Um, and uh, to her credit, uh, Gabbard appeared on the program, and she, I mean, she, I, my impression is she'll appear on any program. She's willing to talk with anyone. Uh, she's not afraid of Fox News. Uh, she's not afraid of, uh, of The View. <laughs> How's that for a contrast? But um, they, uh, you know, before they could, before the uh, host of The View could kind of dig into the things they wanted to talk about, she just went right after him. says, um, she just went right into... Uh, taking a shot uh, at the hosts, and particularly at Joy Behar, I believe I'm saying her name right, who had said in October that Gabbard could be, quote, a useful idiot for the Russians. So Gabbard um, fired back, uh, telling Behar that her remarks were, quote, extremely offensive, and she said, you're implying that I'm too stupid and too naive and lack the intelligence to know what I'm doing. You should watch this. There's a clip about it online. Um, you know, Bihar, again, she, she kind of pushed back saying that it was the, quote, Russian term, but Tulsi insisted that she needed to, quote, set the record straight. She said, quote, I'm a patriot. I love our country. I'm a strong and intelligent woman of color. And she said to Joy Bihar, you and other people continue to spread these innuendos that have nothing to do with who I am. Well, Anyway, um, you know, I, I don't know where Tulsi Gabbard's campaign goes from here. She has not been spending too much time in Iowa lately, spending more time in New Hampshire. Uh, but I still would not write her out. I would also not write out Andrew Yang. I've also always thought that Yang uh, was one of the candidates that, that, that should be, should, people should keep an eye on him. He really has a way of uh, connecting with people. He's very engaging. Uh, and his ideas... Well, they have, they have some appeal because they're, they're out of the box. And uh, it's hard to argue against uh, his observations about autom automation. And even his proposal to give uh, people 1000 bucks a month, that's not that new. That goes back to Richard Nixon even, <laughs> the last liberal president the U.S. had, Richard Nixon. So um, I, I, th I think he, he's got some appeal there as well. Now, um, a... a a tried and tested and I think overused and now um, new <laughs> face in the field is uh, potentially Michael Bloomberg. I'm just kind of surprised that Bloomberg is um, thinking of running again. Uh, again, he dismissed that possibility earlier this year. Of course, so did Tom Steyer. I don't know. It seems like billionaires can't make up their mind, right? So Steyer, after you know getting out, got back in. And now Bloomberg, after saying he was not going to run, is apparently serious enough to you know, serious enough about it to be filing for, filing to get on the ballot in Alabama. And why Alabama? Well, because Alabama is one of those states where you, you've got to get on early enough. So, you know, and, and honestly, a Bloomberg, Bloomberg can hire enough people quickly enough to get on the ballot of any state he wants. Um, somebody running a grassroots campaign might have a bigger challenge doing that. So anyway, um, <laughs> I would not be surprised to see Bloomberg get in the race. I will say this about Bloomberg. He help fund an excellent film, Paris to Pittsburgh. Very impressive. Good, um, a good uh, expose of the urgency of climate change. But when push came to shove, uh, you know, oftentimes to really figure out where a candidate stands in terms of their commitment to climate, you've got to ask them point blank a very specific question. And Kathy and I did this with Bloomberg back in December of last year. Where are you at on the Dakota Access Pipeline? And he said, well, it's underground. It's not that big a deal, right? Well, 
Um, yeah, actually it is, but um, wrong answer. But you know what? We appreciated the fact that he just came out and said how he, said how he felt. Compare that with Amy Klobuchar, who is doing everything possible to avoid having to answer the question about where she stands on the proposed doubling of oil through the Dakota Access Pipeline. Anyway, that's, uh, that's my caucus report, folks. Um, so much going on, so little time, so few of us on the ground doing the hard work. But we appreciate uh, those who um, take the time and effort to go talk with candidates because it's not easy. It's time-consuming. Um, the venues can get really crowded and uncomfortable. But uh, it's important that we do this. Anyway, we'll be talking more about this for the next uh, two and a half months or so. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.